Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the Plodcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is Plodcast 224. 224. So let's, uh, what are we going to talk about today? I'd like to talk about the case coming out of Mississippi that's coming up before uh, the Supreme Court, uh, the, the Dobbs case. Now, this is, an inter- this is a really interesting situation. The Dobbs case, uh, the, the way the Dobbs case is set up, it could conceivably be the uh, case that the Supreme Court uses to overturn or cripple Roe. So over 60 million unborn children have been summarily dispatched since Roe was decided. And this is the decision that could really interfere with Roe or strike Roe down altogether. Now, as I'm um, recording this. I'm recording this episode at the end of January 2022. And as I'm recording this, the decision on the Dobbs case has not yet come down. But according to their normal schedule, uh, the Supreme Court uh, justices have already voted on it. So the, the, uh, the voting has taken place, and the Supreme Court justices know which way it's going, but there are still some variables we don't know, and the security is generally um, pretty tight on these things, not, not letting it get out uh, which way it's going to go. If we go back a few years and look at the Obergefell decision, Anthony Kennedy was initially voted, uh, initially voted in favor of traditional marriage, biblical marriage, and then because of the enormous pressure on the judges uh, flipped later on. So they, they, they normally vote, and then they have time to write their decisions, the majority decision, the minority decision, and so on. There was enormous pressure, and Kennedy flipped and went over to the side that, that resulted in the Obergefell legalization of same-sex mirage on all 50 states. So, in this situation, let's say that the Dobbs case, it's already been voted on, and let's say the vote is such that the Mississippi law is going to be upheld. If the Mississippi law is upheld, then Roe will be struck down. That will not protect unborn children uh, throughout all the United States because states would still have the legal right to keep their pro-abortion laws on the books which New York would and Connecticut would and Massachusetts would and California would. So there would still be states where abortion was accessible, but it would be legal if Roe is struck down, it would be legal and quote-unquote constitutional for states to outlaw abortions, which uh, something like 25 to 30 states would almost immediately do. Some states have a some the law already passed that if the Supreme Court ever determines that that abortion can be restricted, then they have a law that will uh, just automatically uh, go take effect. 
Uh, so you have 25 to 30 states that would become states where abortion would be restricted. Now, if the vote of the Supremes, if uh, so it's a nine-member court, if the court goes five to four, upholding the Mississippi case, then, uh, then the one most likely to write the majority decision would be Clarence Thomas. And if Clarence Thomas wrote the majority decision of a decision that strikes down Roe, the chances are, I, I would argue, the chances are excellent to outstanding that, he, that Thomas would write a majority decision that would burn the house down. And, you know, like a, like a daisy cutter bomb. It's conceivable that John Roberts, who has become, who's become something of a, uh, I don't know, weather vane, something of a back and forth, depending on the, on the issue. He's not, he's not a reliable conservative voice anymore at all, but he is, I think it'd be fair to call him a swing vote. It's conceivable that John Roberts would come and vote with the majority in order to be able, he's the chief justice. If he voted with the majority, he'd be in a position to write the decision. And if he wrote the decision, uh, you can bet quite a bit of money that he would not burn the house down. So Thomas would burn the house down, take no prisoners. And Roberts, it would be a kinder, gentler reversal of Roe. Now, that's the, that's the situation. If, if they fail to up, uphold the Mississippi law, then I think it's fair to say, as Michael Dougherty uh, recently wrote in National Review, I think it's fair to say that the whole Federalist Society strategy of fighting the culture war has failed because they successfully recruited and got bright young law students to you know, go into law, to get them positions as clerks and uh, established as judges. You have all these top flight uh, Federalist Society type judges around the country, and then Trump appoints three of them, and and you've so you've got basically the the Federalist Society strategy worked, and they got Federalist Society types on the court, and then a case comes out of Mississippi that gives them the clear, clean opportunity to strike down Roe, and then they didn't do it. Basically, if they don't strike down Roe in this decision, then I think there's going to be an epistemic crisis among conservatives. And that's not hard to predict because I think we have an epistemic crisis going on already. <laughs> we, it would just get worse. Basically, it would fragment, I think, the uh, already tenuous, already strained uh, relationship between conservatives. And it's, it'd be it'd be hard to predict what's going to come out of that. So one last comment is if you are, if you are an abolitionist pro-lifer, basically if you're anti-abortion and an abolitionist and you've been fighting to outlaw abortion completely top to bottom in a place like Oklahoma, if you're an abolitionist and you have uh, railed against the incrementalists for being compromisers and temporizers and whatnot, Maybe there'll be a re reproachment here if the Dobbs case goes the way it ought to, and the decision whether to restrict abortion is handed back to the states. It will have been the incrementalists who gave the abolitionists on the state level their opportunity. And I think it'd be nice if the abolitionists 
were gracious enough to say thank you. So we're continuing on with our podcast, episode 224. Uh, This is our hamartiology section. One part of the path to godliness is to make a point of studying what the Bible says about sin. We, want to, we don't want to study sin the wrong way, but we do want to study sin. In this hamartiology segment, we are working through the New Testament to determine precisely that. What does the Bible teach about sin? The word we're going to be considering today is ekakeo, ekakeo, E-K-K-A-K-E-O, ekakeo or Epsilon Kappa Kappa, you know, you know the deal, which means faint or be weary, faint or be weary. Now, although we might think that there's no spiritual problem with getting tired, hope not, because I get tired every night, the scripture uses this word uniformly in a negative sense. Ekakeo is always used negatively at a spiritual level. It's something you shouldn't do. It's okay to be tired, but it's this thing, ekakeo, you shouldn't be. There appears to be a sense of discouragement that goes with it, and we are told to avoid it, and we're told to avoid it in numerous places. Here's one. In Luke 18:1, it says, And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. All right, don't give up. You ought always to pray, and you ought not to be grow despondent or weary or faint, and give up praying. So, it's not, uh, it's not a sin when you're running a mile to run till you're out of breath and you know, run till you're exhausted. That's not a sin. But it is a sin to pray and grow weary of it, to, to be taking something to the Lord and then grow despondent or tired. Second uh, Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. All right, so entrusted with a particular ministry, having been recipients of mercy, the Apostle Paul says, we faint not. All right, so don't, don't faint, don't grow discouraged. A few verses later, 2 Corinthians 4.16, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. So the outer man is going through all sorts of afflictions and trials and tribulations, and uh, we're going through all this stuff. Paul says, we faint not. Then Ephesians 3.13, Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So Paul's going through a lot on behalf of the Ephesians, and he tells them not to be discouraged, not to grow weary, not to, grow, not to give up because of what he's going through. Don't do that. Then, there are two places where, where we're told not to get weary. It's a different translation of the same word, ekakeo. Galatians 6, 9, and let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. So don't be weary in doing good. Don't be weary in, in your labors for the Lord. Don't get discouraged in that. And then 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, but ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. If you're doing a good thing, don't grow tired of doing the good thing. If you're doing a good thing, if you're doing good deeds, if you are laboring the way you ought to, don't grow faint. Don't grow weary. The book this week that I'd like to uh, uh, review is a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying by a gent named Holiday. Trust Me, I'm Lying by Holiday. 
This is a book about um, that explains how and why certain clickbait headlines show up in your newsfeed on your computer. How does that story get there? And uh, this guy, Holiday, used to work in the industry, and he ba- basically he said he was a <laughs> he was a stone cold liar, and um, and did uh, p- pulled all kinds of uh, unethical stunts. That over time he began to feel he, he began to have second thoughts about. He um, he then moved into business and was the CEO of a of an apparel company and and then was on the receiving end of some of this uh, business. But he he understands how easy it is to have falsehood propagated deliberately propagated on by means of the internet. Now this this is the um, odd thing. Okay. This is something that everybody sort of knows. Everyone sort of knows that this is the kind of thing that happens. So if someone says, hey, have you heard any news about thus and such? And someone says, yes, I I did hear. I heard uh, that Senator so-and-so, da-da-da-da-da. And someone says something like, are you sure? It's a standard operating procedure, at least in the circles that I've been in, for people to make a joke out of. Of course it's true. I read it on the internet. And then everybody laughs because everybody knows that just because it's on the internet <laughs> doesn't mean that it's reliable at all, right? So we, we all know that. We all know that. I, I think it'd be uh, fair to say we all know that technically. We all know the fact that it's on the internet or the fact that someone put up a clickbait headline doesn't make it true. We all know that. But as Holiday shows, you can know technically that they're lying to you a lot. You, you can know and academically know that they're scoring points on you, but you don't know the ones you missed, or you don't know the ones they're getting by you and you know nothing about. So you reject three stories. That's false. That's false. I don't buy that. I don't believe that. And you go home feeling good about yourself because you, your BS detector, found out, and you went and checked, and yeah, that's a false story. That's a spurious story. You go home feeling good about yourself because you caught those three uh, lies, but you're not aware of the nine or ten uh, lies that got by you or that, that they, they actually successfully steered you or persuaded you. Uh, the main reason, basically, uh, the main technique, or I'll, I'll not, I won't say the main, a main technique is the fact that there are uh, bloggers out there whose revenue depends on clicks. And this is the way the internet works. People get paid by the click-throughs. They get paid for the times they successfully got people to set their eyes on this particular thing. That's the incentive. That's the way the whole system is incentivized. You're not paid uh, for X number of true stories, you are paid for X number of looked at stories. You're paid, you're paid according to traffic. You're not paid according to the awards you get for being such a truth teller. And so there are people who are in this sort of, uh, they're all trying to climb up the greasy pole of internet fame, the greasy pole of ambition. Everybody's trying to do that. And that means you've got to produce new content all the time. 
And if you've got to produce new content all the time, you're having to produce new content that people want to look at. And so if you make an outlandish claim and it gets 50,000 people to click on it, and then it turns out to be false and you run a little retraction in the fine print three days later that nobody looks at, well, is that a success or a failure? Uh, what Holiday shows is that in this new economy, where people, where you're paid, where the, all the financial incentives are in favor of just getting people to gawk, just getting people to look. You don't have to get them to believe it. You just have to get them to believe it or suspect that they might believe it long enough to click on it. And so, given the fact that the news cycle is so fast, that means that the, the writers of blogs that want people to come to their blog and read what they're talking about are ravenous for content. That means that a, a cool operator off to the side who wants to, um, let's say, do in Senator Snoutwurst, let's get a uh, viral story going about him and his, you know, his Martian love child, or, you know, whatever, the, the, what used to be the preserve of National Enquirer type things. Blogs are hungry for content. And they're hungry for content that will get people to look at their story. A third-person operator can feed an outlandish story or a hit piece, and they'll run the story, and they don't look at the scoreboard of truth and falsehood. They look at the scoreboard of clicks. Now, what that means is that we need to be far more skeptical than we are. Everybody's skeptical about error on the internet. But as this book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, shows, and this is a testimony from inside the industry where he explains how this whole operation works, it, it's, a, it's a good exercise, especially if you're the, you're the CEO of a company or if you're part of a ministry that might, might be the victim of a drive-by, you know, drive-by journalistic hit piece, uh, as our ministry has been a number of times. We've had... Uh, People set up shop to attack us, and the, uh, and this is how this system works. Someone puts a story in motion. Someone quotes so and so. Someone quotes so and so. You once you're into the groove, you've got deniability, and now you're just reporting on the story. And where does the person go to get his reputation back? It's uh, can be challenging. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I could read through C.S. Lewis with Doug Wilson? Then you're in luck. Canon Press has just produced a new show called The Commons, and on that show, I read through Mere Christianity with you. Well, actually, I read through it and have discussions with Dr. Benjamin Merkel because the show is presented by New St. Andrews College. But you'll feel like you're reading with us. Mere Christianity is divided into four books, or sections, and we devote one episode per book. So grab a copy of Mere Christianity and join us. You can watch the discussions on Canon Plus. Go to mycanonplus.com and jump in. If you like it, consider subscribing so I can keep reading Lewis with you. Links are in the description or wherever they put them. Well, I don't know.